How you feeling, buddy? Is it okay if I call you buddy? You called me out on calling you buddy one time. I did. Uh, I don't really like it. It's usually a con- it's usually <laughs> condescending when people say, "Oh, hey, hey, buddy, uh, what's up?" You know, uh, uh, it's like chief, chief. Is it, buddy? What's your favorite thing to call a person? Uh, I their name usually. That's sort of my thing. <laughs> but if you were gonna, <laughs> if you were gonna replace their name with what are those words even called? Like dude, man, bruh, Boy, I, bro, you know, buddy. Uh, that's a what great are the, question. What's, what's the name I'm of that? I'm sure that there's an answer to that. There's got to be a word for those words, uh, but I don't know it. And it seems like it should be something that we all know. Um, anyway, do you do you ever use those words? Uh, I used to. You must say man. I do. I do. I've, I've been consciously trying. I mean, that like where I grew up uh, saying man uh, was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty constant thing. Um, and uh, I've been trying to consciously remove that from my vocabulary um, for a number of reasons. Like, uh, uh, you know, I, I just I don't like how it sounds uh, and also the whole sort of gendered aspect of it. And also, like, I, I don't like those. uh uh, terms. I mean, sometimes they're handy. Sometimes you don't know someone's name and you say, Hey, like, okay. So like if I was in a situation where I didn't know someone's name and I had to get their attention, uh, what would I say? Um, I guess probably buddy. (laughs) I guess you're right. Yeah. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome back. We took a week off last week. We weren't here. Sorry about that. Sorry to all you loyal listeners. We're going to try to be regular, but it was the end of the semester. There were things that we had to do. It's a bad, bad you time want us to of say? the year. Yeah. Uh, but now is a great time of the year. Uh, we're heading into summer. So as we as we always do, we're going to uh, segue here into Billionaires in the News. All right. Billionaires in the News. Okay. Uh, so this week uh, we're talking about uh, the um, major donation uh, that Robert F. Smith, uh, who is uh, uh, the world's, uh, well, I guess the world's, but um, uh, really the the United States's uh, most wealthy African American, uh, he overtook Oprah recently. Let's start with the let's start with the thing. He just uh, he just announced that he was going to pay off a entire classes student yeah. loans at a Morehouse college commencement. Yes. So he's erasing student debt for everybody at Morehouse. Uh well, everybody in the graduating class of 2019 uh at Morehouse and uh do we have details of, on how he's going to do uh, this? The det- <laughs> the details are still emerging and and even the amounts are still emerging. Uh they, you know, I they didn't announce it ahead of time because they they wanted it to be a surprise, and so like I don't know if there was a way for him to collect data on how much money people actually owed, but it's a lot, and I, I've seen estimates between like uh, ten and forty million dollars, so it's a pretty wide range. Uh, um, 
So, so the obvious question that I'm sure every single person talking about this is asking is like, how pissed are you if you're the class of 2020? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, he did introduce it as a challenge pledge for uh, other alumni of the college to take up. A challenge to do what? What? What is the class of 19? Are they going to become billionaires by next well, year? No, no, no. I think he means <laughs> other previous alumni from the school to uh, donate to a fund that's going to uh, erase student debt for people at Morehouse. Dude, let me tell you right now, the class of the 2020 is going to have some serious student loans yeah, that they're yeah. going to be hearing <laughs> off forever. I think that's probably right. It's just, I mean, I actually have a student who transferred to Morehouse and is now a freshman who oh. just finished his freshman year, I guess. I bet you he is pissed. Yeah. Or maybe well, he's psyched. I don't know. We could get him on the I show. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> we could. I don't know <laughs> if I'd be angry. I think I'd probably feel happy for those other people to some degree. Um, Kinda. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's sweet. It's sweet for them. Regardless, that's... Not really the point. So his company is Vista something yeah, or other? Yeah, Vista Equity it? Partners. Um, they, okay. you know, uh, uh, we've complained a lot about private equity on the show. Uh, as private equity firms go, Vista is like a little bit less bad than other ones because- the They're not destroying companies. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The business model is not like move in, fire everybody, uh, change the management, sell off assets. It's actually to like build companies. Um, hmm. uh, and, and I don't know how well that works or like what it means, you know, on the ground. Apparently for... it works pretty well because I was reading a little bit about it before the show and they're making like insane profit, like 20% like yes. returns every year. It works right? very so, well in terms of, uh, 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 increasing shareholder value, right? But private equity in general tends to work pretty well for increasing shareholder value. Uh, and they're a little bit ahead of the game, you know, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, the returns that they get. Um, but uh, what I would like to talk about <clears throat> are uh, is his philosophy. This, uh, the article that I'm, I'm reading from is uh, uh, called Private Equities Philosopher. Uh, it's sort of a weird article, but like, here's how the journalist uh, describes his, uh, Smith's philosophy. Uh, he says, <laughs> in practice, Smith's philosophy is an unusual amalgamation of laissez-faire survival of the fittest and a progressive desire to open up opportunities for the disadvantaged in the world. In essence, it means that anyone, if their talents are correctly identified and they are given the right opportunities, can achieve what they want in life. Like, in my mind, this is what I wanted you to help me explain. In my mind, I don't understand how, say, laissez-faire survival of the fittest and progressive desire to open up opportunities for the disadvantaged in the world can possibly form an amalgamation of like well, a I mean, it just or consistent. It it just lacks a complete awareness of how structural forces work on individuals. You know, it just chooses to ignore that. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, so maybe what you're saying is like that that this sort of way of thinking about things lacks a structural critique, right? Like in in other words, it's like. Everybody is the same uh, in terms of their capabilities. It's just that some people uh, don't run into the right opportunity. Right, right, exactly. So yeah. He's about giving people the tools to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Totally. 
Um, Which like, misses so like, many points on so many levels. Right. And it doesn't make any sense, but like it makes sense for him, right? Like that uh, as a billionaire, he's, uh, you know, he's out outspoken about his opposition to uh, closing the carried interest loophole, uh, which is a way that uh, private equity and hedge fund managers uh, 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 ensure that their income is untaxed or taxed at a lower rate. You talked about this a while ago, right? Right. Yeah. I don't think that we really explored the carried interest loophole in any sort of detail, but it's something that people have probably heard about before. Uh, And it's something that is seen as a major contributor to wealth inequality in the United States, right? Or uh, people uh, and also people not paying their fair share in taxes, right? It's something that only benefits like a few hundred people in the United States. It's just hedge fund managers and private equity managers, right? Like it's like, that's who it benefits. And uh, uh, it's a loophole in the tax code that allows them to avoid uh, paying regular income tax on their income. Uh, and so like the, the, the laissez-faire survival of the fittest, right? This idea that government should keep its hands off of um, uh, uh, the business uh, world, right? Uh, the world of uh, capitalism is uh, uh, like, you know, consistent with that belief and in, in, uh, um, minimizing the tax burden of uh, the, the super wealthy. And also uh, with the idea that philanthropy is the answer to solving uh, the problems of inequality and lack of opportunity, right? Like that um, philanthropy is another thing that we come back to a lot. And uh, um, so, so you, te- uh, is- you, se- you texted me before the episode philanthropy is hegemony. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I, I think that's the sort of basic conclusion. I think that's what we can gather from what he's saying here. And, and, you know, for, uh, you know, the way that we could define uh, hegemony for the audience is, uh, is the means by which uh, the wealthy and powerful uh, spread an ideology that uh, supports the status quo that has made them wealthy and powerful. <laughs> and, so the idea is you do these sort of spectacular, uh, very visible acts of philanthropy, and that in itself is a, a kind of ideological operation that you are performing uh, on people in general, right? Like on uh, the American populace and the American electorate, uh, that it, it functions as an argument to say that, look, philanthropy is good. Wealth right. inequality is not the problem. Right. Uh, the problem is, you know, uh, opening up more avenues for charitable giving. Well, then, and, like and then that. you have all of these grateful people who are out there doing press on your behalf, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of reinforcing that argument and helping it proliferate. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a win, win, win. You know, the, the college students who have their de- uh, debt erased win, uh, the billionaire uh, wins in getting a bunch of free favorable advertising for his or her brand. And uh, well, it's not free. It costs like forty million. Oh yeah, I guess it's not free, right? But um, uh, uh, you know, the the advertising itself is not purchased. Um, but people, as you said, are just sort of covering it because uh, uh, it's an unusual event. And uh, and also, uh, it it serves as a powerful argument in the minds of regular people that the richness is benevolent, and that we should trust yeah. the rich people to make decisions that will benefit us all, which is obviously not true so much of the time, but there are these examples that get showcased that serve as, you know, 
evidence for that argument. Yeah. And to to the extent that social problems persist or that poverty persists or that lack of educational opportunities persist, uh, the responsibility for like fixing those problems uh, falls on individuals, right? Like there's an implicit argument in um, uh, spectacular acts of philanthropy like this, that what we really need to solve our problems are more generous, rich people and not changing the system so that there is a less of a gap uh, between rich people and poor people. Coming into the show, what do you know about Sumner Redstone? Nothing. Okay. Uh, and in fact, I went out of my way to to not even uh, read his Wikipedia page okay. uh, because I wanted to uh, be surprised at what you had to say. Well, you know, like he's he, he, of all of the people that we've discussed so far on the show, he's the one that would have been most likely to appear in our own education or our own teaching because he is a media magnate. Sumner Redstone is the owner of a giant media conglomerate in the United States. It has a complicated history that I'll talk a little bit about, but essentially uh, it uh, is, a, is a company, National Amusements, that controls both CBS and Viacom and together makes it one of the biggest media conglomerates in the country and, and, and in the world. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about how he came to be who he is. And then we can talk a little bit about the the role that media consolidation plays in our lives. Yeah. I do I do want to say that I really enjoy the uh, name of his business, National Amusement. Well, it's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, so it's it started <laughs> out as Northeast Theater Corporation, but I guess when they went bigger, uh, <laughs> they decided to call themselves National Amusement. But it could be anything. Yeah. I mean, National Amusements could be. I mean, what what are some other things that companies um, that amusement parks, uh, gambling? Yeah, uh, yeah. I just like yeah. I mean, amusements is such a, such a vague word. It's so it's so good. All right, Redstone, Sumner Redstone, son of a liquor wholesaler who grew up in the tenements in Boston, West End. His family, I think, had sort of shady connections. Um, and ultimately, his dad started this family business, this this movie theater chain. Uh, and that would be where Sumner Redstone sort of begins his, his media industry career. Before that, he spent some time, uh, he served in World War II as a code breaker cracking hmm. Japanese military codes. And, and then in the 50s, he joined the family business. It became National Amusements at a certain point, and he became their CEO in 1967. So, okay. Some people who pass through this earth have one moment in their life that becomes somehow like the defining incident of their whole life. Do you have a uh, do you have a moment like that, Chad? Is there a defining moment of your life? No, no. My life is just sort of like one gray, amorphous uh, 
slip and slide. That's how I think of it. Just no, no distinct events. Just, just one kind of, thing blurs right into the next. Ju- yeah, just mushing through life. <laughs> <laughs> no direction, no distinct points of rupture. Well, <laughs> it seems pretty clear that the most significant event in Redstone's life happened in 1979 when he was caught in a hotel fire that left him with burns covering 45% of his body. And he survived by hanging out the window of this building on, on a ledge, waiting for the firemen to come save him. So he's just badly burned, hanging on by his knuckles to survive. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty extreme event in his life. But, you know, this happened sort of mid-career. So, you know, he'd been working at National Amusements at that point and the CEO of National Amusements for over a decade. Uh, And, you know, some people could have been super content and happy just being rich, owning a, 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 a very successful national chain of movie theaters. But uh, Sumner Redstone had bigger ideas about he, what he wanted to do. And in the 1980s, he really begins this process of developing what becomes one of the world's largest media empires. So uh, the, the, the major move that he makes is in 1987 when National Amusements takes over Viacom and he becomes the chairman of the board. He goes on to become the CEO of the company in 1996. Do you know anything about Viacom at that time? Because when I think of Viacom, I typically think of cable channels, right? Like uh, yeah. Central and MTV, right? And, and stuff like that. Uh, but so that was, you know, like that that era was right at the beginning of cable television, Um right around the founding of CNN and uh, and things like that. So like, what was Viacom doing before? I think those things were were starting to get off the ground. I don't actually know exactly what its holdings looked like in the moment that he took control of the company. I mean, today, Mm -hmm. like you say, Viacom controls the Nickelodeon group, MTV, Comedy Central, BET, Paramount. Um, It wasn't all of those things back in the 80s, but it wouldn't be hard to dig up. So then in 2000, Viacom acquires CBS. So together, Viacom and CBS become this sort of massive, massive media force. So and the history, as I was saying earlier, is a little bit complicated. I don't fully understand it. But basically, National Amusements is the parent company that owns CBS and Viacom. And CBS and Viacom were one company, um, and then they became two separate companies in 2006, still owned by National Amusements. And Sumner Redstone still sits on the board of both of those, or did at the time. In recent years, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of speculation that another CBS-Viacom merger is in the works, um, and... Uh, this seems something that has been a goal of Sumner Redstone's daughter, Sherry Redstone, who now uh, is running the company. Um, and it's not 
it has not happened yet, but if you were to Google the situation right now, you would see a lot of people talking about it and, and, uh, again, speculating that this is something that's going to happen soon. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that like, uh, you know, you, neither you or I are really, you know, uh, as, as Joe mentioned a little bit ago, we're both, uh, in the field of media studies, but neither of us are really like media industries, uh, people. And and so like, I don't keep super up to date with, uh, media industry conglomerate. Well, it's always changing. I mean, things are changing. It's hard. It's that, hard. But that, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, that's, that's the one thing that I notice is that it's constantly changing, right? Like that, uh, you know, it, it, you, you can't even keep your charts up to date. It's right? just uh, a mess, you know, but basically, I mean, th- the five biggest media companies in the world right now, or sorry, in the United States right now, are uh, National Amusements, Disney, News Corporation, Comcast, and AT&T. Yeah. And these five companies control 90% of the United States media industry. And while this is not the sort of media studies that I do uh, or that you do, this is one of those statistics that got me interested in media studies in the first place. I mean, I, I, I can remember way back when, 20 years ago, sort of hearing about the fact that just a handful of companies controlled everything yeah, and that being like a, a dawning of a new kind of awareness, like, oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now, I mean, I've, you, yeah. you know, it's something that we're very familiar with. And so it's not so very surprising. Um, but it does, I don't know. I mean, it, it does articulate to the interests that we pursue more vigorously in the show. I mean, right. it's, you know, when we're talking about who owns what, we're talking about the communication infrastructure of the United States. And one thing that you notice in the the, the corporations that you named, like AT&T and Comcast, uh, these are information delivery systems, right? Like they own actual infrastructure, uh, uh, not, you know, in other words, they own the media not just the right, message, yeah. right? Uh, uh, and traditionally, I think when we you know, thought of like media companies owning things, it was like owning particular media properties. Like we tend to think of Disney doing today, right? Like Disney is this like behemoth now that owns every uh, major like character yeah. right? <laughs> that there is. Um, and, and, and I think that whenever people talk about media consolidation, like that, uh, they they typically uh, didn't think of them as these like vertically integrated behemoths that not only own you know uh, Star Wars but also own the wires fiber optic cables ground that yeah. Star Wars yeah, yeah right <laughs> um, but that's that's increasingly the case so okay before I'm done with this segment I wanted to touch on one more artifact that I found while researching Redstone for this week. Um, And this is a video of uh, an interview back in 2009 that Sumner Redstone gave at the Milken Institute. You remember the Milken Institute. Yeah. You want to refresh our listeners' recollections about the Milken Institute? 
yeah, uh, Michael Milken, uh, big time, uh, he, w- widely known as the father of junk bonds and uh, went to prison. And uh, later on, he had a second act in life where he refashioned himself as a philanthropist and uh, and has this thing called the Milken Institute, where a bunch of rich people get together and network and talk about uh, ways that capitalism can save the future and stuff like that. So in 2009, Sumner Redstone was interviewed by Larry King at the Milken Institute. There's a there's a <laughs> so, video. okay. So he's 86 at this point, and Larry King, who is uh, like maybe 140 <laughs> at that point, is uh, inter- Larry, that, that Larry King. I think it was in his 70s at the time of the interview, um, and uh, Sumner is in his 80s. But uh, you can go find what maybe we can link to the uh, video in uh, the show description, but. The title of the video is called A Conversation with Sumner Redstone. If you could live forever, what would life look like? <laughs> and I, I think there, there are just so many things that happen in this interview that I think sort of like tie in to various points that we've made on the show or sort of interests that we've begun to explore. So I thought I'd offer just a sampling of questions and answers and 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 just sort of burn through them and then Chad, we can spend maybe a minute or two sort of offering some reflections on, uh, on, on what we've heard. All right. uh, so uh, about four and a half minutes into the interview, King asks, you have not slowed down sexually. <laughs> Redstone. No, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. And there's like they're like saying that there's like dust coming out of their mouths <laughs> as they're saying this. And like okay. There's like little about ghosts. a minute about a minute later. <laughs> King, how about sports? Do you golf? <laughs> Redstone. No, I watch golf. <laughs> I watch tennis. I watch baseball. I watch football. Football particularly because Bob Kraft is a friend of mine. Oh, nice. Uh, King interrupts at that point. Great guy. <laughs> Redstone. Yeah. He is a great guy, and he owns the Patriots. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, that, like, this is the thing, you know, like, uh, um, uh, this is like a, a, you know, and the milk, I'm glad you brought up the Milken Institute because like the, the very funny thing about this is that this is a very small world of people, like the, the super wealthy, and they all sort of know each other and run in the same circles and they might not necessarily like each other and they might have their, you know, their sort of like petty disagreements about this or that, but like, um, it, it, like when you, one of the things that I've noticed as I've begun, begun like researching this stuff is that their paths cross so much. It's like, it's like you're reading about, a like, a uh, a, a young adult novel about <laughs> a high school, right? Like they're, they're just like constantly. Well, it's like the, the number of billionaires, like it's like in, the size of a really big high school, you know? So, and like, yeah. you know, no one else can it afford is. the places that they go. So of course they're running into each other all the time, you know? Yeah, um, I guess that makes okay. Sense. And that's Um, what they want. So I'm going to keep on going with some of these. King, are you as competitive as ever? (laughs) Redstone, more competitive than you know. I've been competitive all my life. King, what do you do with bad days? Redstone, I don't have any bad days. Really? What about that day that you were hanging out of a window (laughs) after your body had been burnt to a crisp? That sounds like a bad day. It's it's funny. I guess he sort of uh, managed to put a positive (laughs) construction on it somehow. Uh, King, are you generous? Redstone, yes. 
<laughs> he extends the thought. Put it, put it to you this way. My generosity extends to institutions to which I have faith. Like Milken. <laughs> like Mass General, which treated me when I was severely burned. And particularly to the Prostate Cancer Center run by Agus, who I think is his doctor. Uh, it's not so much the $2 things. It's major gifts to people that had a big effect on my life. So I, mean, I guess the point that I wanted to, to, to bring out here is that, you know, like so many acts of philanthropy, the, what Redstone is describing are, 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 are acts that are sort of deeply self-interested, you know, that are informed by his particular right. specific life experiences, which means that philanthropy gen- generally is is sort of chaotic. Yeah, I'm, that's a. I mean, that's a really good point to make about philanthropy, right? And uh, we could see that with uh, Robert Smith too, right? Like he gave. He's an alumni of Morehouse, and he gave the money uh, to the student uh, to erase student debt at that college. And like the, the philanthropy is uh, completely subject to the whims of uh, the super wealthy, right? Like <laughs> if they if they happen to get burned really badly or go to a particular college, then they're going to donate to those places that are more concrete in their minds because they have experience with them. Yeah. Right. Uh, but what philanthropy can't do is uh, uh, uh operate like a government, which is to redistribute, to distribute resources where they're needed, uh, for whom they're needed or by whom they're needed. It's just like, oh, I ran into this thing or I experienced this thing. And so I'll give money. Right. To it. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I think chaotic. That's a good word. Chao- it's chaotic, yeah. right? So, it's like little molecules. Running into one another. <laughs> yeah. So two more just final questions. King, do you travel a lot? Redstone. Yes. <laughs> King, do you fear, fear Alzheimer's? Redstone. No, I'll never have Alzheimer's. Now, I mean, yeah, I think. I mean, I think after that, like you can you can see why uh, why people say that Larry King is the the uh, the world's greatest interviewer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> that is that is just. Dynamic I mean, these stuff. were you know, granted, these were cherry picked. You know, there's more to the interview than what I've offered you here, but the just the level of like like softballism. You know, and like the fact that like, I mean, what kind of story does this tell? He's interested and people in general are interested in relating to billionaires like they're royalty, like like they're an aristocracy. Right. In the same way that people are uh, uh, paying attention to Harry and uh, uh, I don't even know the royal couple's baby that. Uh, Meghan Markle's, you know, baby. That there's like, it's like, oh, that's so interesting, right? And uh, uh, I, I love to get a window into their lives. But I mean, there's something, there's something sort of insane about it. You know, it's like, it's like you have this very powerful person worth billions of dollars controls massive media industry, and then you're just trying to kind of characterize him in very specific ways. You haven't slowed down sexually. You like golf. Yeah. You're friends with owners of a football team. You're very competitive. You don't have bad days. You're generous. You know, like, what is this? You know, never have Alzheimer's. I mean, these sort of flip. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I love when you, I love when, like, the moments when you realize that, oh, this, 
uh, this billionaire is completely insane, <laughs> right? Like, uh, oh, I can categorically say that I will never have Alzheimer's. We, I mean, I guess maybe if you're that old, you can probably make a I make mean, an educated to, guess that you're going to die. I'll, I'll say you. I'll say one more thing <laughs> okay. about this to provide a little bit of context. Redstone is known for making these very outrageous st- statements to the press about how the f- how he's never going to die and how he's never going to be sick and how he's going to live forever and how he's going to control. So oh, it's, really? it's part of his shtick, but basically. You know, now he's almost 96 years old and uh, he's, I think, been ruled mentally incompetent. So he's just like a slobbering old guy who sits around and watches TV all day. I, I mean, uh, and he wants to live forever. I don't Why? think he I don't think he's at the point <laughs> now where he's capable of, of swaggering around and making these kinds of statements. I think he's on his on his last legs. I'm talking about Michael F. Price, uh, probably not a name that you've heard before. I mean, I feel like I've known five Michael Prices in my life. Just, I've known none, but it's just a very generic sounding name, is it not? Yeah, yeah, I kept getting him confused with Robert Smith. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, who we talked about because he's Robert F. Smith, and, and this is Michael F. Price. Uh, uh, and that, that middle initial similarity kept throwing me off, but... Um, he's, uh, you know, he's a pretty standard sort of, uh, financial wizard guy. Um, uh, we, you know, he is a mutual fund manager. He's, he's not, you know, he's sort of in semi-retirement, I guess, but like what, what he became famous in the eighties and nineties, uh, as a mutual fund manager and mutual funds in case like, you're like me and don't know anything about financial industries. Uh, mutual funds are just things that people invest in as groups, right? Uh, so, like uh, a uh, people like Michael Price will start a mutual fund, and then you can buy into the mutual fund uh, as an investor. And things like four hundred one ks, IRAs, those are all mutual funds. Uh, mutual funds are the biggest sector of the economy that we've talked about so far. There's like $19 trillion. Uh, and yet somehow uh, the American. most boring. This is already boring. <laughs> it is. Not well, you. I mean, that's Not the you. thing, right? Like, Not you, Chad. No, no, no. It, it is boring. Uh, you know, like uh, 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 most mutual fund uh, investment is the most boring form of investment that there is, right? Because you're investing in index funds that just sort of track the market, uh, like the most diversified, most distributed risk uh, that you can have. Uh, because what you, you what you're trying to do is to stabilize it for the people who are investing. They don't want to take a lot mm-hmm. of risk because their retirements, right. you know, depend on it. Some like However. Uh, uh, Michael Price wa- is not that kind of mutual fund guy. He is uh, what what um, th- there's another you know term activist investor that you might have heard, and I like that term. Uh, I don't like the fact that it's a kind of euphemism for a, a kind of a bad thing that people do, um, but I like it because it, it it's something that you, you can use in relation to private equity or leveraged buyouts or uh, mutual fund people like Michael Price. It's sort of like all of this stuff is sort of the same, right? Like the difference is only in where the money comes from. Okay. And so what, what Michael Price would do 
you know, he people mention him in the same breath as people like Carl Icahn and T Boone Pickens, who are who are famous. I know about T T Boone is an oil guy, right? Yeah, energy guy. They were uh, yeah. Yeah. And then basically they were hostile takeover guys, right? Uh, corporate raiders, hostile takeover. They would they would buy up stock in a company and then like control it. Um, uh, Price did the same thing, but he did it with money from mutual funds. Um, and uh, uh, so basically the idea is that you get a bunch of people to invest in a mutual fund and then this mutual fund buys up some portion of the uh, uh, of the stock of that company. Uh, it seems like it's usually between five and seven percent. And then that's that large stake in the company gives you uh, votes on the board uh, of the company. And uh, and I'm not sure of uh, the, the specific mechanisms by which uh, they force uh, this stuff, but what they do, uh, that gives them enough control that they can force out management uh, or uh, uh, change management and be the cause of a lot of major changes at a company uh, that will increase profits in the short term in the interest of shareholder value, right? And so when we're talking about activist investors in whatever context we're talking about them in, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about um, an investment fund that comes in, that, that, that buys a large stake in a company and then controls the future direction of that company uh, for the purposes of increasing short-term <clears throat> uh, returns for investors in that fund, whether it's private equity, hedge fund, um, it's very interesting. Uh, it's a, uh, a, it's a very fund. different sense of the term activist than I'm used to. Yeah, no, it's not activist for a good social cause. It means like being uh, an activist within a uh, boardroom at a large corporation, <laughs> right, or a small one. Um, and so like, that's, that's what he did. And, and we've heard that story before. Um, he, uh, you know, uh, his big, big, uh, he did two things that, that made him a lot, uh, the most of his fortune. Uh, one, he sold, uh, Heine securities, which is where he started working and, uh, uh, Heine, uh, I think Robert Heine, I can't remember his name. Uh, 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 sold the company to him, and then he sold it to Franklin Templeton Investments, which you've probably heard of, for uh, like seven hundred million dollars or something. Okay. And the other thing, he did one of these uh, activist investor moves with uh, Chase Bank. Uh, he got Chemical Bank to um, merge with uh, Chase. And that uh, chemical uh, bank. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, officially, I think the Chase Manhattan is is owned by chemical bank. Weird. But uh, Chase Manhattan is a has more brand. Awareness, yeah. A lot so more brand that, awareness. That, yeah. So that was like back in 95. Um, and uh, it generated half a billion dollars in stock gains for uh, Price's mutual fund after that merger happened. Um, and so like that, that's sort of what he does. Um, he, he finds, he, he calls himself a value investor, right? Uh, which is another very sort of vague term. But uh, what it means in his case is that you find a company whose stock price uh, is undervalued. 
which means that you identify a business that has a low stock price uh, or a stock price that's lower than you think it should be. And then you move in and you make changes in the company uh, to raise the stock price to where you think it should mm-hmm. be. And, and then you sell and you make a bunch of money because you bought low and sold high, right? Okay, man. So so just hold up. I'm, I'm, now I'm just begging you. Tell me something interesting about this guy. Is there anything? There's got to be something. Yeah, well, there is. I'm, I've been kind of holding back on it. You know, I, uh, the interesting thing about him is uh, not him uh, himself, <laughs> uh, but his favorite CEO, who you may have heard of, Al Dunlap, uh, who uh, his he has a few nicknames, uh, such as Rambo in Pinstripes and the Shredder. Uh, but his most famous nickname is Chainsaw. Okay, Al. so back up. What do you mean, um, favorite CEO? So the way that uh, the way that this kind of uh, uh, investing works is that you buy up a, a, a large part of a business and then you start uh, swinging your weight around and making the business uh, conform, uh, making the business make decisions that you think the business should make. Uh, and often that is a change in management. Uh, so what Price would do is he would buy a business and then he would bring in his favorite CEO, uh, Al Chainsaw Dunlap, okay. uh, whose uh, MO was to fire everybody, uh, sell off assets. And eventually uh, it was found out just completely lie, basically cook the books uh, with accounting companies uh, to make it look like the company was more profitable than it was to jack up the share price of that company. And then they would sell. How'd they find out uh, about the cooking of the books? Where, what's the evidence there? So this is a, this is a case that they still teach in business schools. It's a very, very famous case. It has to do with the Sunbeam Corporation. Hmm. You may have had a Sunbeam toaster in your life. They make small household appliances, okay. and small electronics. Um, so let me uh, uh, just quickly uh, tell you a little bit about Chainsaw Al. Um, He died in January. Uh, January 2019? uh, Yeah, yeah. He just died. Uh, He is... Uh, he he was a, a major player in John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test. Uh, in fact, there's a TED Talk uh, uh, that John Ronson gives uh, about his interactions with Al Dunlap. Huh. Um, uh, he uh, did not do well. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Uh, he scored really highly on the psychopath test, you know, but that, you know, that uh, kind of means he was a psychopath. <laughs> you know, so Michael Price... Uh, uh, kept a portrait of Al Chainsaw Dunlap on his desk of uh, Dunlap holding two six shooters and, and a, uh, like a, a ban- painting, a photograph, no, like a, a photograph? photograph of him with guns and like bandoliers and like, um, and he would keep this on his desk uh, because Dunlap to him, I think encapsulated his business philosophy, right? Which is, uh, uh, and the way that they describe it, uh, is, uh, uh, the primary responsibility of CEOs is to provide value for shareholders, nothing else, right? So no responsibility to employees, uh, to communities, uh, to the social welfare in any, any sense. All you're doing is to try trying to increase value for shareholders. And this was a kind of business ideology that took over in the 1980s. And that people like Michael Price were really famous for advocating. And so like when they discuss this stuff in business schools, they'll they'll use Chainsaw Al as 
an exemplar of uh, of that ideology taken to its extreme. I see. Right. So he he's the sort of poster boy for extreme shareholder activism. Right. Um, and uh, uh, so, like, you know, Price bought, you know, he identified a Sunbeam as a value investment. He bought a bunch of stock in it. Uh, he tried to make some changes. They weren't working out. He tried to sell it. Nobody would buy. And so he's like, all right, we're going to gut this place. He brought in Chainsaw Al. Uh, they fired tons of people. Uh, they uh, sold off assets. They closed plants. They, um, and they, and then, as I said, they, they also cooked the book, uh, cooked the books. Um, and, uh, and that increased the share price. Uh, it, it basically doubled it, um, and added a half billion dollars to, to Sunbeam's market value. Uh, and, hmm. uh, both Dunlap and, um, uh, price made tons and tons of money as a result of the Sunbeam project. Though uh, Dunlap, he didn't go to jail and wasn't convicted, but he did pay lots of fines. Arthur Anderson, uh, the uh, accounting company, paid 110 million dollars in fines. Dunlap was barred from ever uh, managing, in any respect, a publicly traded company uh, for the rest of his life. Okay, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, it turns out there is a PBS Frontline episode about this called Bigger Than Enron. And it was about how Arthur Anderson and accounting companies sort of helped manufacture uh, on paper profits for companies. So, the like, you know, just one it, he did this in a million ways. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts kind of thing. But one of the, the ways that people talk about is that uh, he... Uh, made Sunbeam look profitable by saying that they had sold a bunch of grills. And what drew people's attention to this is that he announced it in the winter, which is not when people buy grills, hmm, right? Okay. And so well, it turned out that there was no inventory. Sunbeam wasn't making the grills. Uh, nobody had paid for the grills. It was just sort of like an order on paper uh, that people said that they were going to probably buy grills when the summer came around, but like no, there were no wheels in motion right, to actually <laughs> wow. move toward the sale. It was just sort of something that they said. And so like they, you know, they would do stuff like that and that's what he got busted for. Um, but like the, the stuff that wasn't illegal that he did is uh, like a million times worse. Um, uh, he, he was at Scott paper was the, he was the CEO of Scott paper, you know, the paper towels and toilet paper and stuff like that immediately prior to being CEO at Sunbeam. And that was in uh, 94. And in 20 months, he fired 11,200 people, um, 35% of the company's workforce. Um, he, uh, uh, and he used that money to pay off the company's debt, which uh, made the stock price skyrocket. And uh, then uh, they left, right? Like they, you, you uh, put in a new CEO, he fires everybody, he sells off assets, and then you leave uh, with your profit. And, and like, that's what they do. That's their business model. Hmm. Um, the 11,200 people without jobs, and, and I don't even know how many people lost their jobs at Sunbeam. I don't have a stat on that. Uh, but like, you know, that's the casualty of uh, Michael Price making half a billion dollars, right? Uh, and Dunlap, you know, uh, <laughs> like Dunlap got like a hundred million dollars or something out of it um, after uh, when, when all was said and done. 
Uh, so any fines that he paid were minimal in, in comparison to the money that he made on it. Um, and so like that's he, you know, Dunlap is really the the person who is uh, associated with Michael Price, who's who's the most well known. Um, but like he wouldn't have been anything without this class of activist investors who was installing him to specifically carry out these tasks, right? Like if it wasn't Dunlap, it would have been somebody else, right? He was just a functionary in a larger business philosophy <laughs> that people like Michael Price and specifically Michael Price uh, uh, were uh, advocating and, and carrying out. Like if it wasn't Dunlap, it would have just been somebody else without uh, any kind of scruples who could, you know, fire people and attack them. Oh yeah. Also, uh, Dunlap was famous for like choking people and screaming at them. And, yeah, just, just, just a, a, a true psychopath. Um, but you know, the, the so-called activist investors, they need to find these people. Right. And then they, you know, they keep their pictures on, on their desk to remind them of, of what they're doing, I guess. And, um, so, so that's, um, so that's it. Okay, so uh, I think now is the time that we choose our billionaires for next episode. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Ooh, our first female billionaire. Wow. Jennifer, Jennifer Pritzker. Uh, there are a Pritzker. lot of Pritzkers on this list, so we might need to, to treat them as a group. There are, in fact, five. No. There are. Oh, my God. It looks like there are 11 of them. Uh Anthony, Daniel, Jay, Jean, Jennifer, John, Karen, Linda, Penny, Thomas, what? and Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's... Are they all cousins? Uh, that I do not know. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe they're all brothers and sisters. Uh, that, you know, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think there's a few different generations here. All right. So we've got them locked and loaded. Let's roll it again. Uh, do, 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 uh, Our next, uh, our, our last billionaire this week is Tom Benson. Uh, he... Tom Benson. Tom Benson is another sports team owner, uh, owner of the New Orleans Saints. But I guess he made his fortune in uh, owning Chevy dealerships, it looks like. So, hey, you know, that, uh, <sighs> yeah, it doesn't sound too exciting at the start, but uh, maybe it'll be exciting. I, like, uh, uh, is he from Texas? Uh, he seems like he'd be on Friday Night Lights. Because <laughs> he owns a car dealership? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We'll find out. Um, uh, which one do you want? Um, I'll take the Pritzkers. Is that how you pronounce their name? I think so. Yeah. Because I feel like I had, uh, Les Alexander was the last sports team owner, right? Yeah. And I had Yeah, him. yeah. So it's my. <laughs> We've got to just play volleyball with It's weird. I mean, there can't it's be, gonna... you know, this is the third NFL owner that we've had. Is that right? I mean, there's, but think about it. Every single one of them is going to be a billionaire, right? You know? But there's and a so lot you start more billionaires to count up. There are NFL teams, right? 
Yeah, but then there's Major League Baseball teams, there's NBA teams. Yeah. I mean, Les Alexander was NBA. Do billionaires even bother owning baseball teams? I don't feel like I hear about that a lot. Maybe baseball's not as, I don't know. It's like the least cool sports team to own, maybe. Yeah, some for some reason I feel like everybody wants a football team. Yeah. Anyway, uh, okay, so I'll take Tom Benson, owner of the New Orleans Saints uh, and owner of uh, several Chevy dealerships, and uh, we'll see you back here next week. 